This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, hoj här kommer Carlson. Carlson, Carlson, ingen faktiskt, ingen annan Carlson vill jag så bra som mig. Carlson, Carlson, Carlson scores! Carlson, Carlson, världens bästa Carlson. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast, the best fantasy hockey podcast in the world, hosted by two guys who, at one point, owned Eric Carlson in their keeper pools. I'm your host, Elon Dubrovsky, and with me, the fantasy hockey robot, Brian Kong. Hello, everybody. Hello, Elon. You really snuck that in there, that at one point... I think it's time we expose ourselves for for what we really are. I mean, like, we we haven't been living a lie, so to speak. I feel like the league in which I had Eric Carlson as a keeper is now defunct. And so I feel like I just own him in perpetuity. So I still <laughs> I still have him as a keeper. Should that league become active again? Yeah. And by the way, speak for yourself, Brian. I wasn't living a lie last season like you were. I had Carlson all last season in my keeper league. But yes, that league is now also defunct. And I'm starting a new one. And I'm hoping I could draft Carlson. But we'll see. So for now, I'm going to just put that at one time in the title. But it's just for a short period. I'm going to get him back, I promise. But okay, guys. Big episode today. I'm really excited. I think we have a fun one for you. We're going to be talking about some players who, looking at different projections, we've seen some variability. We've seen some differences. And so we're going to weigh on on where we think these players should land. Before we get into that, let's, of course, mention that we are presented very proudly by DauberHockey.com. It's the best fantasy hockey website out there, which is pretty perfect because we're the best fantasy hockey podcast out there. Dauber Hockey, fantastic website. All the fantasy hockey news all the time. Updates articles all the time plus there's the guide if you haven't had your draft yet you have to get the dauber hockey guide because you could get all the projections and the reasons behind the projections and basically everything you need to be successful at your draft yeah that's all there is to it and so many little nuggets in there like i mentioned some on the show you know if you want to find out you know if there was a defenseman who scored 50 points but less than 10 power play points or a forward who did a similar feat inside the dauber guide there's endless amount of little tidbits and nuggets like that if you are pulling your hair out trying to make a decision there are little tiebreakers scattered all throughout the guide that'll help you probably pick a side dauber hockey great guide great site let's get started before we get into the main point of the show like i said before about the projections i just want to mention a quick fantasy hockey headline of the week which is Tyler Sagan is injured in the World Cup and he's out of the tournament, which is a bummer for sure. I mean, I'm sure Team Canada will be fine. I'm not too worried about them. But I think that there has been some questions we've been getting on the patron-only Facebook group and on Twitter. People wondering, is Tyler Sagan like an injury concern now? Because so he had an MRI revealed that he has a hairline fracture in his heel and they say he's going to be out 
you know, at least a week or two, and they hope he'll be ready for the start of the season. But, you know, now you start looking at the last couple of seasons, 71 games in 2014, 72 games in 2015. So the last two seasons, he's missed time. Now it's looking like he's injured again. People are starting to wonder, is this the kind of guy that I have to start being worried about, that he's not going to play a full 82-game season? Obviously, when he plays, he's amazing. He's had over a point per game in each of the last three seasons, which is like a very rare feat. I can't even think of too many players aside from maybe like Malkin and Crosby who have done this. Brian, what do you think right now about Tyler Sagan? Should we be dropping him down into like a Malkin type status since he also tends to get injured a lot? Or are we still thinking Sagan, like, don't worry about it. It's just an injury. Happens all the time. I'm in the second camp. Don't worry about it. He's missed 10 games of each of the last two seasons. I mean, you're expecting maybe two or three or four maintenance games anyway missed by a player. So that's just another five or six if you look at it that way. And we're nowhere near Malkin levels here. Like Sagan does not have, I mean, okay, he's had some Achilles knee injuries that are not the easiest to recover from and overcome completely, be back to 100%. But like the most recent one, he was sort of pushed into a weird feet first fall into the board. So he got a hairline fracture, his foot. It's a free kind of thing. It could have happened to anyone. It has nothing to do with his overall health. So no, I'm not ready to call him an injury risk. And I'm going to draft him as a guy who's going to play as much as anybody else in the NHL. I don't see his injury types yet being repeatable. Okay, Brian, well, that's good news. I'm sure a lot of Sagan owners are breathing a sigh of relief. And if you're not a Sagan owner in a keeper league where there is a Sagan owner, maybe you're saying now's the right time to throw a trade offer at them. Maybe they don't listen to Kevin Carlson. Maybe they're getting a bit nervous about all these injuries. Plus, last two seasons, I believe his injuries were both during the fantasy hockey playoffs, so it really hurt their owner. So maybe that guy is like, ah, Sagan, I'm so sick of this guy. Maybe he's now your chance to lowball. And then pretty much in the same vein, if you're just going into a one-year draft, maybe Sagan falls a couple spots and you could get him at like seventh or eighth overall when before you would have had to pick him with like your fourth or fifth pick. Yeah, great time to float out an offer. And the playoffs are still in everybody's mind. Remember, he got injured towards the end of the season, and the Stars tried to get him to go in the playoffs. It did not go well. I think he played under 15 minutes in the one game he played, and they decided that was it. They had to shut him down. It was not a good idea. So his value might be lower today. Well, it's definitely lower today than it will be in a month or two from now. So if you can swing some kind of deal and scare Sagan's owner into thinking that this guy is a Band-Aid boy, to use a dauber term, then uh, I'm, I'm all for it. Tyler Sagan's great. And especially in a Roto League, if he misses 10 games, it's not a huge deal because, like Elon said, he is producing at above a point per game pace. In a categories head-to-head league, it's a little bit of a different story. But still, I think it, it it's still a, a reasonable thing to handle if he misses 10 games at some point during the year. Yeah, you just got to kind of cross your fingers and hope that they don't happen during your playoffs when you've worked hard all year and then all of a sudden you lose your top guy. But that could happen to anybody, you know, so it's not the kind of thing that you should be worried about with Sagan more than anyone else at this point yet. Maybe we're on watch a little more now, but for now, Brian's still saying draft him as you normally would, keep him as you normally would. Okay, Brian, let's get into the content for this week's show. And I want to give a few caveats. So we're going to be talking about projections. We've got three sets of projections that I have purchased. I've got Dauber, McKean's, and actually Scott Cullen, who I didn't have to purchase because he releases them for free. I've got their three projections. Now, we're not going to be talking on this episode about who we think is better or worse. We're not going to be talking about like, oh, this guy projects players too high or too low or anything like that. All we mainly want to look at is players who had variance in their projections. And the other caveat I want to make is I'm just looking at normalized points. I took all of these projections like Cullen, 
Dauber and McKean's, they all give a number of points and they also give a number of games played. I just like took the number of points divided by games played and multiplied by 82. So we not, and we're not talking about like how many games the player is going to miss due to injury. I'm just talking what pace the player is going to have, assuming they played 82 games. And also we're just looking at points. So I'm, I hope, Brian, you got the whole structure of what we're doing here. Totally. Yeah, the point is that we're we're going to sort of anonymously name these projection systems. Of course, you can match up Scott Collins really easily and the other two if you've also purchased them. We're not we're not here to give away any free projections, but we are finding that there are some players who there's a large disparity between and we're here we're here to cut through that and tell you on which end we're we're going with. All right, so let's get started. I think you guys will pick it up as we go along here. I want to start at the very top. This guy is on the top of at least a couple of these guys' list. And, you know, maybe even higher than the aforementioned Tyler Sagan. I'm talking about Sidney Crosby. We have one projection at 87 points and the other two projections at 95 and 98. So obviously, all of them are expecting a over point per game season for Sidney Crosby. So maybe that's like kind of nitpicking whether he's 87 or 97. You know, there's a big difference between like 40 points and 50 points and between 87 and 97. But I think it's interesting to talk about Crosby now just because we haven't talked about him in a while. And we have been actually getting some questions recently about whether now's the time to start shopping him in like a dynasty league because, you know, he's getting a little bit up there in age. At least I'd expect still a few good years from him. But I guess, Brian, that's what I want to talk to you about because you know a lot about players like aging curves and things like that. But, you know, not so young. He's 29 years old and he's still been great the last few seasons. Like there's really not been any sign of a slowdown for Crosby. Like last year, 85 points in 80 games, which is even more impressive considering that to start the season, he had like five points in 11 games. So he had to really overcome that to end up with his 85 points in 80 games. Anyways, Brian, so I guess my question is sort of like, do you see him as the 85 or, you know, 95 point player that these different projections are insinuating? But also, I kind of also just want to ask, what's your thoughts on Crosby going forward, like past next? Next year like if we still think of him as like an 85 point guy next year do we think he's going to stay like that for the next two years three years four years just curious to get your general thoughts on the guy okay so first off before i give you my thoughts just explain the disparity in crosby's projections in particular because we've seen him projected in the mid 80s all the way up to the high 90s but one thing that all these projectors seem to agree about is that he's going to finish in the top five in the league scores the argument between them seems to lie in how many points it's going to take to be a top five scorer in the NHL this year. And if you're looking for some kind of sign that'll tell us that, going back all the way to 2003-2004, every Art Ross winner has eclipsed 100 points in their championship year, Art Ross championship year. With the exception of Jamie Benn two years ago in 2014-15, he led the league with 87 points. But then, of course, he was followed by Patrick Kane, who picked up 106 points in his own Art Ross campaign. And I'm a believer that the Art Ross race this year is going to be back up around the 100 point mark again, and that Crosby is going to remain a player in it. So I'm going to go with the high side of these projections. I see him more as a 90 plus guy than I do as a mid 80 guy. And if we look at the bigger question from you, Elon, which is, okay, how long can we expect him to be that guy? Because we always like to think of him as Sid the Kid, the generational talent that's coming in and going to tear the NHL apart, which he did. But now he is 29 years old. He's one year away from turning 30. And we have to start thinking about how he's going to age because normally forwards peak between the ages of 22 and 26 years old. And then they can kind of keep up for another few years. But then once they get to their 30s, that's when the danger increases of a greater and greater fall off every year. So if we go back and look in the last uh, six or seven seasons, since 2009, 2010, 
13 different players in the NHL age 30 and up have had point per game seasons. And together, those 13 players have accomplished this feat 20 times. Five of those guys did it in the 48-game season, though, in the lockout shortened year 2012-2013. And three of those did it in fewer than 65 games played. So that actually takes out part of the sample if you're looking at somebody who's going to play more than 65 games in a season and have a point-per-game pace. It's only happened 12 times in the last seven or eight years. But most of those seasons did really happen in that age 30 season, which for Crosby is going to be 2017-18. So if you're starting to get really worried about him, don't. He's going to be one of those 30-year-olds who can definitely keep getting a point-per-game pace. He is that generational talent, so I expect him to keep going up until that point and for a little while after that. So I'm actually going to go out there and say that five seasons, including this next one, takes him all the way to his 33-year-old season. And I'm going to consider him a point-per-game guy at least until then. And for me, it's hard to look further than that because of injuries and how the team around him might change and you know how the Pittsburgh cap situation is going to come into play. I, there's so many things that can happen. But hypothetically, if we're looking at a 34-year-old S- Sidney Crosby, can he still be a point-per-game player? Has it been done before? And I can tell you that since 2009, 2010, there have been only a handful of players who were 34 years and older to get a point per game over the course of a season. And those players were Timo Solane, Daniel Alfredson, Marty St. Louis, Pavel Datsuk, and Joe Thornton. Does Crosby's name belong in that group? Absolutely. And it could belong atop that group. So I'm actually going to spot him at least one more, even though I said it's hard to imagine beyond five years. If nothing significant changes around him or in a situation, I am definitely happy to go for six more point per game seasons with Sidney Crosby. It might be generous. It is saying that he's not going to have an off year from now until six seasons from now. Uh, I just don't see him slowing down. He's still so good. It still seems like he challenges his line mates every single game to keep up with him. The only thing that might stop him is injuries, right? They're the big derailer, but they're not predictable. And Crosby, at the start of his career, he did have a bit of a reputation for missing time from the season, sort of in the middle of his career to date, because in his first five seasons, he only missed significant time in one of those. Then he had a rough patch for a few years, but now he's played 77 games or more in three consecutive seasons. So injuries or recurring injuries are not currently a consideration in that sort of projection. So I'm going with five or six years out from now, I still expect Sidney Crosby to be a point per game player or at least very close to it. Okay, well, Brian, I think, you know, this is very interesting that you're saying that. I feel like basically your answer is to all these people wondering if now's the time to start dumping Crosby in their dynasty leagues, you know, trading them for maybe someone who's a bit lower, but you expect will play a few more years, you know, the Tarasenko's, maybe even the Sagan's. You're kind of saying, no, come on, you got Crosby. He's good. Obviously, you have to evaluate every trade offer as they come in. And of course, there's a guy named Connor McDavid, who maybe even already could be close to doing as well as Crosby. But aside from him, it sounds like you're saying, stick with Crosby. Don't get worried. Don't start thinking that you need to trade him just because he's approaching 30. That's very useful to know. And you know, like you say, Joe Thornton last year had 80 points. So I feel like if Thornton could do it, definitely Sidney Crosby could do it. I don't see why not. Yeah. It's not to say his value is going to stay static in your keeper league. Like if you consider him a top five guy for this year or a top five keeper candidate, you know, he might be a top seven or eight as new guys enter the league and they're he becomes a new crop of elite talent in the NHL. So his relative value might not be the same compared to what it is today. 
But yeah, I still expect him to be a really strong contributor well into his early 30s and hopefully all the way to his mid-30s. Cool. Well, yeah, by the way, I should correct myself. Joe Thornton, 82 points last season in his age 37 year. What an amazing guy, Joe Thornton, by the way. But we're not talking about him. We've talked about him enough in the summer series. Let's talk about some new guys. And let's talk about now a guy who we've talked about his line mates a lot. I feel like we've talked about Barkov and we've talked about Yarmer Yager and given our projections for them. But we haven't really focused on Jonathan Huberdo. And I was very interested when I was looking at these projections of the three projections, two of them matched. Had him at 71 points, which I think is like very high. That would be his career high. But then the other projection had him only at 57 points. So a big difference. 57 points, like less than 60 or over 70. So I'm really interested to see what you think about Jonathan Huberdeau moving forward. I'm very interested to know also why the projectors would have given him such a high like upside, considering last year he had 59 points in 76 games, which is a 63 point pace and i recall brian you were saying when you're talking about barkov and about yarmer yager especially yager that line had a really high shooting percentage and you know you were saying that you didn't think yager would be able to do the same so how can we expect yager to fall but huberdo still to go up so i guess i mean hopefully i'm not giving away too much of your content here but for me i think i would go closer to the lower side i think 60 points would be great 70 seems high i'm curious to know what you think Yeah, so 71 would be a career high for him, for sure. Last year, he had 59 points in 76 games. Give him a few more points if he plays the whole season, and he's up to 63, which is still a pretty significant chunk away from 70. The interesting thing about Huberto, and I remember this when I drafted him two years ago, he's come on strong the last two seasons in the second half. I had him for like the whole first half expecting a huge breakout two years ago, And the breakout came after I dropped him in the second half of the season. He did the same thing last year, really upping the pace after the all-star break in the last 40 games or so. So if you plan on grabbing him, the first thing you need to do is plan to exercise some patience when you get him. It's not going to pay off right away if he follows the same pattern that he has in the last couple of years. But, you know, that is the question that differentiates these two poles of projection. Is he going to start slowly? Is he going to follow that same pattern? Or can he put up his second half point production all year long? My short answer, I think 70 is a really optimistic number for him. It reminds me of last year when people were touting Ryan Johansson as a sure thing for 70 points. And like, yeah, he could have broken out for 70 points. It wasn't happening in Columbus. Of course, he changed teams and still wasn't on a 70 point pace. But going back to Huberto, you know, I've declared my own projections for Panthers players to be in like a holding pattern this year and I think this is the year where you know they make some key adjustments to how they operate in order to become serious cup contenders and that sort of transition doesn't necessarily allow for you know commensurate growth in point production so you know if they're working on refining a system or whatever I feel like offensive point production from an individual definitely takes a back seat to that And that's what I expect to happen to Huberto and Barkov this year. Elon, you already alluded to the on-ice shooting percentage issue from last year. It was high. And I don't expect them to have exponential growth based on their seasons last year. I look at Huberto's 63-point full season pace from last year. And I think that's about a good starting point for this upcoming year if he does play All-82. Again, I'll grant that a breakout in his fourth year to something bigger isn't out of the question. He does have the line mates to do it with. But I still don't think that there's enough room for growth just this year because of the change in system, because of some regression that's due in on-ice shooting percentage for Huberdeau to blow his previous career high out of the water. Yeah, and I should point out a couple things. Like, first of all, 
Remember, I'm talking about these projections. I normalize assuming 82 games. So one of the projections, for example, had him at 75 games and then getting what is it, 65 points, which is probably closer to where we expect him to be. But when you normalize, you know, we care about, especially in a head-to-head league, you care about how he's going to play for you when he's on your roster. And so, yeah, a 71-point pace does seem really high. I agree with you. I mean, it would be nice. And don't forget, like a 57 points or 60 points, especially for a left winger, that is like someone definitely worth drafting. And maybe we're drafting high. Like left wing is kind of hard to find in your draft, especially compared to centers. So like, I definitely don't mean to imply that you should be avoiding Huberdo. And he's a guy who maybe has upside for more. Like maybe there's some other left wingers similar to him. Like, a, I don't know, Rick Nash. Maybe, I know, Brian, you really like Rick Nash. Or like James Van Riemsdyk is maybe someone we could expect for around 55 points. Except I don't know how much more upside there is above that. Jonathan Huberdo, there is some upside. So Make of that what you will. I definitely think he'll be in the top second or third tier of left wingers. But yeah, 70 points. That's really high. I think the only left wingers I could see getting over 70 points are, oh man, I thought I had like obviously Ben and Ovechkin, then Johnny Gaudreau. Then I don't know, maybe like Panarin, maybe Max Pacioretty. I don't know. I can't really think of any others aside from that. So that's a, a hard group to crack. Yeah, he does rank relatively well, especially as somebody just entering his age 23 season, which is an important consideration. If you're in a keeper league, this is a good time to get on board with Jonathan Huberdeau. It might be your last chance to get on board if he's not already kept in your league and he interests you as someone to keep into your future. He does have an offensive pedigree, despite what you might have thought from his sophomore season or even his third season where he had 54 points in 79 games. A lot of people after that year thought that's about where he was going to land. He made some progress last season, and I expect him to keep making some, but maybe only two years from now. I don't I, like it's just a hunch I have for the whole Panthers team. I could come out very embarrassed from all of that talk about the transition year and making team wide adjustments, but it's how I'm feeling. So, and then let's talk about now another guy who around the same age as Jonathan Huberdeau, Tyler Toffoli. Also, I've been seeing some variants in his projections. I guess all the guys we're going to talk about this week fall into that category. That's the theme of the episode. Sorry. Okay. Tyler Toffoli though, I've seen projections for 56 and then as high as like 67. So Brian, like again, a big difference over 10 point difference and 56 is closer to, you know, this Huberdeau low. And yeah, basically kind of the similar guy. And you know, one's a center like Tyler Toffoli is a center. So it's a little different last year though. Also he had 58 points. So nowhere close to the 67 points, very close to uh, the 56 that I said. So I'm just curious to know what Tyler Toffoli, if we should expect that he's going to go higher or lower than he did last year. Like two seasons ago, 49 points in 76 games was very promising. We thought he had more to give and we were right. He had a great year last year, 58 points, nothing to sneeze at. And if you recall, he had some really good stretches. Like he had 10 points in 10 games in October and 10 points in 13 games in November. So he started the season really strong, but kind of slowed down. A bit at the end, definitely nothing close to like, you know, the 70 point pace that he was putting up for most of the year. So I guess the couple of questions for you are, first of all, do we see him being hired? Do we think he could be consistently a producer or do we still think he's like young enough that he's going to have some hills and troughs as he goes? So you said he's a guy who has variance in his projections. He also had variance all season long in his scoring rates last year. He's very stop start in terms of when he was scoring and when he wasn't and to illustrate that. I'll get into just a few numbers, but first the big picture on Toffoli is, you know, like Huberto, he's another in-bloom player. He's been given more responsibility. And with that responsibility, he's also improved his scoring rate stats in each of his last three seasons. So positive signs of progression all around. And yeah, I have fond memories of early last year when he had 30 points in his first 37 games played. And I was hyping, hoping for the possibility of him becoming only the third Los Angeles King in recent memory to break the 60-point barrier, Jeff Carter and Anz Kopitar are the only other two guys to do it 
in the last several years. And a big driver of that big start for Toffoli was him scoring nine goals on his first 26 shots on goal. So right off the top, we knew it wasn't necessarily going to last. But just the goal scoring part, because, you know, the, the scoring did level off. He scored just twice in his next 19 games, but he did continue picking up assists all the while, which was really encouraging. And then I said his season was all stop start. He had another drought of 23 games at a different point in the season where he scored just twice in those 23 games. So looking ahead to next year, I'm actually going to repeat what I said last year with the whole 60 point thing. It's really hard to get to 60 points on Daryl Sutter's LA Kings. It's really hard. The last players to do it other than Kopitar and Carter were Dustin Brown and Alex Frolov, both doing it back in 2007, 2008. And we talk about tough teams to score on tough teams to rack up big point totals on all the time. We talked about older iterations of the flames and Panthers. More recently, we've talked about the Sabres, the devils, the Leafs, the Predators a little while back. And the Kings are actually one of those teams where if you're picking a guy, it's a dice roll to see them get to 60 points if their name isn't Kopitar or Carter. The thing I like about Toffoli, though, is he is in a good position to be the next guy. The thing is that he scored 31 goals last season to get close. I don't think that's necessarily going to last. He did have a higher shooting percentage. Maybe he can maintain that. Maybe we're seeing a new little upgraded Tyler Toffoli, maybe solved something about his shot or shooting locations, but it's not something I can count on when I'm doing my own projections. So he's going to need to keep helping to set up goals, which may be a little bit tougher this season than it was last year because of Milan Lucic's departure. In 2015-16, Toffoli was practically attached at the hip to Lucic as they mostly played with Jeff Carter, but they did occasionally trade up to play with Anz Kopitar. This year, the other winger on Toffoli's line is likely to be Tanner Pearson, Teddy Purcell, Dwight King, and I don't know that that's going to be an upgrade over Milan Lucic. So Toffoli's recipe for success is going to be to keep setting up Carter or Kopitar, whichever one he does end up with most of the time, and then cashing in when they reciprocate. He's going to have to take the scoring mantle on the Kings someday. I feel like it's some kind of inevitability that he does crack 60 points on the Kings, especially as Jeff Carter's heading into his age 32 season. So that'll open up a window as Carter declines into Foley has to be the go-to guy to score. But I just don't know if that time is immediately ahead of us this season. So for now, still count me in the mid to high fifties camp for Tyler to Foley. Okay. I, th- I think that's fair. Like, like you say over 60 points, it's tough and 67 points. That would be an amazing season. That'd be well beyond what he's ever done. I agree with you. I think he's like a really good guy in terms of his floor. Like I think 55 point pace is almost for sure, but I'm not sure like how much he can do. Like you say with his line mates that he's going to get, obviously he'll play with Jeff Carter, but he's going to need someone else or maybe Andre Kopitar. Andre Kopitar always gets 70 points. I'm not sure if you could say that to Foley's going to do like the same thing, but another great guy that you can draft if you can get him. And by the way, I said he was a center. That's what I'm seeing him listed at on fan tracks, though. Last year, he played a lot of time right wing, so he might be a dual eligibility guy, which is always more valuable as well. Okay, Brian, how about now we go to defense for a little bit? Yeah. Why don't we, let's talk about a guy. I feel like we haven't given him as much credit on the podcast as maybe we should. I want to talk about Oliver Ekman Larson on the Coyotes. I'm seeing one projection for him for 48 points and then another one for 58 points. So a 10-point difference. And for a defenseman, that's huge. And by the way, a 48-point season for a defenseman is really good. That puts you among one of the top defensemen offensively usually. But 58 points would be out of this world. Last year, 55 points in 75 games. So that's obviously, you know, closer to that 58-point place. 
And I just am curious to know, like, was last season's 55 points an aberration or is this what we can expect from Oliver ekman Larson? Like, we know how great he is in multi-cat leads, gets so many shots. He had 228 shots last year. This is only in 75 games. And that's like a lot for a defensive for sure. Maybe not Brent Burns a lot, but basically any other defenseman that is among the top leaders. And then he also had 154 hits. So he's great in both of those. He's going to get you a lot of power play points. He got 29 power play points last year, like an amazing year last year for Oliver ekman Larson. But I'm just curious to know, moving forward, do you see him more as a 50-point guy or a 60-point guy, like some of these projections are saying? It's always hard when you frame the question that way because like, I can just skip to the conclusion if you'd prefer. You know what, Brian? You've been doing this a few years. I feel like I'm going to trust you to take this where you want to take well, it. Well, I just feel like you set it up for me to give the people what they want immediately. And then I'm like, hold on. So here's the hold on, I guess. I am just have to be that guy. So like you said, Eggman Lyson, he made the jump from being a mid-40s guy for a couple of years up to being a mid-50s guy last season. And one way that he's getting those points is by scoring goals, two consecutive 20-plus goal seasons, And that makes him one of six defensemen to even accomplish the feat once in the last five years. It's a pretty elite list. And what's even more interesting about that list is that he and Eric Carlson are the only two defensemen on it younger than 28 years old to have managed 20 or more goals in a season. So it's very exciting. Some people might look into Oliver Ekman-Lyson's shooting percentage and say it's unsustainable. It's too high for a defenseman. Well, they're right about the second part. It is quite high for a defenseman, but he has shown that he can keep this coming and he takes such an insane volume of shots that even if he doesn't quite keep it up, he can still finish in the 15 to 20 goal range. So yeah, I'm not going to question his goal scoring or his shot taking. I think those are repeatable. I think he can keep doing that. The question is, the difference between his last two seasons, it was 12 points, but it was also 14 extra assists. So that made up the bulk of the difference in his production from season to season. And then some. So if we take a look at why he had 14 extra assists last year over the year before, the answer comes in his on-ice shooting percentage. It was up just above 9% at even strength. But the interesting thing about that is the two seasons before that, when he was in the low to mid-40s, it was actually kind of low. So even if he does see a little bit of regression in his on-ice shooting percentage, I still feel like it's going to be a fair number that's going to keep him able to reach 50 points. The second reason why he might've had 14 extra assists is because of with the departure of Keith Yandel, he got to play 67 more minutes on the power play and he cashed in with 27 points there, a seven point improvement over his career high. So again, the on-ice shooting percentage thing that could stay or go. I'm not going to count on it staying, but even then he should still be all right with help from this power play time on ice that I don't think Alex Goligoski is about to eat into or someone who's already there like Michael Stone. And for that reason, Oliver Ekman-Lyson is still a 50-plus guy for me next season. I think he's proven that he can score 20 and assisting 30 shouldn't be too tall a task, especially as the team around him matures and hopefully gets better. So Brian, if you had to say though, if he's going to be closer to 50 or closer to 60, which side do you say he's going to go to? That's so hard. Can't I just say 55 right in the middle? Sure. Okay. You think he's going to be a 55 point guy. That's right in the middle of these projections. And that's allowed. We don't have to take a side. We could just say right in the middle. I think he's going to be closer to 55 than he is to 50 or 60. That's a better way to position it. So I still sound like I'm, I'm having a take. Okay, sounds good. And you know what? One of the reasons that we may expect him to be better than last year might be because Arizona finally has some offensive firepower. We saw spurts of it last year, especially at the beginning of the season. But, you know, Max Domi showed up and he had a great season overall. 
52 points, which is great for a rookie, of course. And also, you know, Tobias Ryder had a good year or somewhat good year, at least at the start. Anthony Duclair had somewhat of a breakout. Now we have Dylan Strom showing up. So I think there is some possibility of Oliver ekman Larson finally having some good teammates that could score goals, which should help him. And also that transitions really nicely, I think, to the next guy I wanted to talk about. Also on Arizona, I'm talking about Max Domi. Like I said, 52 points in his rookie season. Fantastic. I'm seeing two projections, which are very close to that 55 and 56, but I'm seeing one of our three projectors was all the way down at 40. And I'm really curious to know if you can tease apart why one of the people between Dover, Cullen, and McKean's, you guys can look into it if you want as an exercise for the reader. But we had one 40-point projection, and I just want to know, because I kind of felt like Max Domi, for sure top line, you know, for sure top power play. He's going to be on the ice with Ekman Larson all the time that they're on the power play, so you'd expect lots of power play points to come. Why should we expect him to fall down? I feel like 50 points was just his floor, so I was really interested to see one 40-point projection. Yeah, I am also very interested to see, and I can't say I'm on board with it at all. Max Domi had a strong rookie campaign. He was the only Coyote, aside from Ekman Larson, to break 50 points. And not just his counting stats were good, but also his rate stats. He was essentially in a four-way tie amongst Arizona players, rate scoring at even strength. Although the flip side of that is the guys he was in a four-way tie with were Shane Doan, Martin Hansel, and Alex Tongay. Two of those guys, Don and Tange, they don't likely have 50-point upside this year. So why should Max Domi? Well, he is just heading into his second year. He also doesn't have any apparent injury issues at this point in his career, unlike Martin Hansel. So you might say of that group, he's still got a leg up on the rest of them. By the way, first in points per 60 on the Coyotes last season, Mr. Duclair, which hey. we're actually going to get to in just a minute. But first back to Domi, he's already seeing the second most power play time on ice in Arizona. And that's kind of a double-edged sword. I doubt that that number goes down, but you also can't be expecting a big breakout based on an increased power play role, which is one way we like to look for breakout seasons. But it's still a reason for him to stay well above 40 points and hopefully into 50s. You know, if I wanted to try and pick at one thing and say, ah, this could be a reason that he sees some serious regression, that he falls off by 12 points from his rookie season, it would be an IPP that's on the higher end of what's acceptable, but the emphasis is on the fact that it was still within what's acceptable. It was right around 70%. And that's like the high end of what you'd expect to see from a forwards IPV. So I am good with it. Like it's not actually a point for concern. I'm just trying to get a sense of where we're at, but honestly, everything else looks pretty good with Max Domi to me from what I saw last season. So I've got him hanging on to those 52 points as a starting point and hoping he can actually build on those, pick up an extra few from there. And if there is somebody to put closer to 40 in the desert, it's actually Duclair. He had 20 goals last year, only 100 shots on goal, though, over 81 games played. So he had just over one shot per game, and he happened to score on like 20% of them. So a really weird season, a weirdly successful season for Duclair, which is funny because we saw a similar pattern from him with the Rangers. Remember, he broke out really big in his rookie season. And everybody got super excited thinking he was the future and he was ready to, you know, be a top six forward on a really high quality team. You know, I still think he's a top six forward, but I don't know if he's a line one guy. I would still like to see a little more from him. He's going to finish closer to 40 points this year than Max Domi will in my estimation. 
Okay, one more quick question about Max Domi. You're saying you definitely think he could build on his 52 points last season. What do you think the upside is for him in a keeper league? Like, just in terms of his overall highest he can get in his career, like, what kind of upside do you see for Max Domi? Do you think he could become, like, a 70-point guy? That's a hard one for me. You know, prospects are a bit of a blind spot for me, so I can't really speak to how high I see him going without having a few years of NHL sample to go by. I mean, for the immediate future, I still wouldn't have him really any higher than 55 in my expectations. Beyond that, maybe he can touch 60. And remember, 60 is a hard thing to do in the NHL these days. It sounds like a lowish number over an 82-game season, but we've talked about in the past over the last couple of years on several episodes that it's not a necessarily easy mark. Elon, if I can remember correctly, only 50 to 55 players in the league are able to get to that mark at most. I might need to look this up later. But anyway, so 55 points for this year, hopefully 60 later. And and I'm happy to update that if he shows me he's got a lot over his sophomore and third seasons in the league. Okay, well, Brian, maybe you could take a second to look it up now if you want. Live show, by the way. I don't know if we mentioned this, but we are live. We've got a bunch of fun people in the chat room helping us along the way. Matthew here agrees with us, by the way. OEL at 60. I think so, too. Why not? Let him have 60 points, ton of shots. I would draft OEL in my league. Okay. Anyway, Brian, before we move on, I want to thank the patrons of Keeping Carlson for supporting us all throughout the summer. And now we have the season about to come. So I want to say thank you to those of you who have put a little bit of their hard-earned money. They bought Brian and I each a beer every two months. I guess $5 a month. That works out to one of us gets a beer every month. Thank you so much to those people. And I hope you've been enjoying your patron benefits. We have the Keeping Carlson patron-only Facebook group. We've got the monthly patron cast. We actually just did a patron cast last week, which was a lot of fun. And if you're a patron, if you even become a new patron, you could have access to all previous patron casts. Also, the deadline has passed for the Keeping Carlson Ultimate Patron Fan Tracks League, but we still have a couple open spots. So if you wanted to join the couple, it's actually not too late. I'm not trying to say like, act now before it's too late, but you know, if a couple spots, if you're interested, we're going to go forward without you. But if you wanted to join, now's your chance. You could go back a couple episodes ago to get all the information about the Keeping Carlson Ultimate Patron Fan Tracks League, or actually you could go to keepingcarlson.com slash for in all of the rules. And Brian, by the way, I don't think we've mentioned enough. The Kakuffle, it's on Fantrax Premium, which is pretty cool, I think. Last year it was on ESPN, and now we have access to Fantrax's premium features. We're using a lot of their cool stuff. We're really excited to try it out. And I wanted to mention also about Fantrax. Actually, Brian, you know what? I've been talking for so long. Do you have anything to say before I just keep rambling forever? Yeah, yeah, always, by the way. Uh, <laughs> Jeff, by the way, just asked in the chat, how many tiers total this year? There are 11 divisions in the Keeping Carlson Ultimate Patron Fantasy League, 11 divisions full of the most hardcore and intelligent and well-informed and good taste in podcast poolies out there. Mm-hmm. You can still be one of them, like Elon said, but as he also said, we'll move on without you. That sounded very threatening when you said it, but I know you didn't mean it. Thank you, by the way. Now I'm rambling uh, to our new patrons uh hello matt s thanks for coming aboard and sergey m we really appreciate you supporting us like elon said we do the show for fun but we also really appreciate your support even just like a buck a month comes out to a quarter per episode if you think the episode's worth that much flip it our way and if you don't at least maybe give us a five-star iTunes review. <laughs> sure. And by the way, I wanted to mention, Brian, I was talking about Fantrax, which this is going to be my first year using Fantrax. I'm excited about it. Did you know that they have cash leagues? I wanted to mention <laughs> friends of the podcast, Fantrax. They're giving us free access to their platform for our leagues. So I thought I'd mention, I actually was telling my wife about how maybe one year I should just retire from my job or take a year off and join like 100 
cash leagues on fan tracks. I'm pretty sure I can make a profit. We'd have to put like a $10,000, $20,000 down payment to join all of these leagues. But I feel like playing against strangers, I, I could do well. So maybe if you think you could do well, you could join a cash league on fan tracks. It's easier. You, you could, you're not playing against your friends. So I feel like I could just like screw them over or like lowball them with trade offers and not worry about any repercussions. All right. Let's okay. move. Okay. Let's move yeah. back. On to the content of our show. Content. Yes. So next player I wanted to talk about, here's a guy who, Brian, I know you like. And when he came up in my spreadsheet, you know, once I put all the projections out there, then I had some conditional formatting to highlight the players with a variance in their projections. And I noticed a name that you love, Cam Atkinson on Columbus. We had one projection for 59. That was the highest. And at his lowest was 49. So again, a big difference. And 60 points, by the way, for Cam Atkinson, that would be very impressive. He's still not a guy that I think gets drafted in most leagues, or at least he's not the kind of guy that's on the forefront of people's minds. But very quietly, he put up 53 points last season, which is definitely not too shabby. A big improvement over his previous career high from the year before of 40 points, 53 points, 27 goals, 226 shots, a good amount of shots. So Brian, I'm curious to know, as the resident Cam Atkinson lover, do you see him as more of the 59-point projection or the 49-point projection? Well, this actually offers me a perfect opportunity to revisit how difficult it is to be a 60-point player in the NHL. 59 is close to 60, so it's also a big feat. Over the last few years, uh, last year we had only 44 skaters reach 60 points. The year before, there were about 53, but the year before that, there were maybe like 48. That includes defensemen, so keep in mind that, you know, take off six or seven from those numbers, and you're left with the only forwards that hit 60 points. I don't think Kem Atkinson is going to be one of those guys or even really come close but I also think that he's better than that low-end projection of 45 points. You know, in Columbus, everyone's always excited about Boone Jenner, I think, because they're in hits leagues and they love the way he plays. But I'm busy watching Cam Atkinson. He had 21 points in 31 games to end the year last year, which is a modest 55-point full-season pace. He had an Ekman-Larsen-like jump last year from two consecutive 40-point seasons to finally breaking through for 53 points, 27 goals, 26 assists. And if you look at him as a valuable piece of the Columbus forward group, he was only second to Brandon Saad in shots on goal per 60 minutes. He led the team in unblocked shot attempts per 60 minutes, and he finished behind Saad and Hartnell to be third on the team in points per 60 minutes at even strength. So I said all that to illustrate that he is a top three forward on Columbus, and I'm hoping he gets that recognition from his coach who, you know, I really don't trust. The thing is, I can talk about Cam Atkinson until the cows come home, until there's somebody who's going to make everything make sense in Columbus. I can't expect a whole lot, but I'll keep going anyway. So Cam Atkinson also saw about the same time on ice in total as previous seasons, but he did more with it. So that's a promising sign. He had the third most power play minutes amongst forwards on Columbus. It was actually really evenly distributed in Columbus. John Tavarella played no favorites. Nobody had more than 200 minutes. And for context on that, only Scott Hartnell cracked the top 100 in the entire NHL in power play time on ice with Jenner and Atkinson being the next Blue Jackets falling in like the 120-ish range. So nobody on the Blue Jackets seeing a ton of power play opportunity. I wonder if that's something that changes next year. I would make the case that Cam Atkinson should be the guy that they can consider looking to. And I would love to see him move the needle. He had just 10 power play points last year. Maybe he can get a couple more this year to help pad those totals and keep moving forward in the big picture. And then looking at line mates, he played with Boone Jenner and Brandon Dubinsky 
most of last year, handling most of the defensive zone starts. They were definitely the most often defensively deployed line in Columbus. While Scott Hartnell, he played right wing with Saad and Wenberg. Bjorkstrand's now in that top six mix. And Hartnell, keep in mind, often plays left wing too. So I'm wondering where Atkinson ends up. If you take a look at the Columbus death chart, it's essentially him and Bjorkstrand on the right side, unless you still are considering Nick Foligno a top six right winger. And if he does get that top six billing and gets some a little more power play time and maybe gets to play with, oh, Brandon Saad, you know, someone better than Dubinsky and Jenner at least, then I think he's got a legit shot at 55 points. He's not anything to get overly excited about. But if you're falling to the point in your draft where you're looking at 45 or 50 point guys, I like Atkinson to be a 50 point guy with upside. Okay, that's cool. And especially since he delivers some shots on goal. So he's not only helping in points, he's got that. Maybe he has upside for some goals. I like it. And you know, like you say, best case, we could see him maybe with Dubinsky and Brandon Sad. That's not a very bad line for a guy like Cam Atkinson to land on. I like it. Okay, Brian, let's go now to some defense. Maybe I guess it's already 846. Man, time just flies. But maybe let's end the show with a few defensemen I wanted to talk about. I want to go straight to Calgary. Two guys on Calgary had very widely varying projections. I'm talking about TJ Brody and Dougie Hamilton. So I saw projections for Brody of up to 56 points and as low as 44 points and Hamilton up to 57 points and as low as 38. So even a wider gulf in Hamilton's projections. But actually, let me start with Brody because Brody, I was actually surprised. I saw 56, 47, and 44. And once again, I'll remember, I'm normalizing for games played, but assuming he plays the full season. Last year, he had a good year. Like, don't get me wrong. He had 45 points in 70 games, which comes out to like a 45, 50 point pace. Like that's a really great year for TJ Brody. But before that, his career high had been 41. I don't know why, but I just don't see him as being more than the 40 point guy, like 40 to 45 max. I was really surprised to see a 56 point projection, especially because the other guy that I want to talk about, Dougie Hamilton, he seems to be coming up. He's the new young guy. I feel like Mark Giordano would be better well served to be playing with Dougie Hamilton as opposed to TJ Brody, even though I know Giordano and Brody have good chemistry together. It'll be interesting to see what happens, but I guess let's start with Brody. Do you see a reason why we should expect him to have a huge surge and go up to 56 points next year? Or do you think he's still around the 40 to 45 point guy? The latter, for sure. One of the projectors, actually, I think the one who had him that high, not only would that be the first time that Brody reaches 50 points for the first time in his fifth full-time NHL season, but they also have him leading the entire Flames decor in points. And I am not quite as optimistic. And here's why. I mean, on the one hand, I, I can see where they're coming from because Brody was an even strength scoring monster last season. He had 45 points on the whole. And not a ton of that came on the power play, just nine points, which is uncharacteristic. When you think of a 45-point defenseman, you think of them having at least 10 or 11 coming on the power play. So Brody fell under that. To put that actually into further context, Brody ranked third amongst all defensemen in the NHL last year in even strength points per 60 minutes behind only the obvious even strength scores ahead of him, Eric Carlson and Brent Burns. So that's a pretty good accomplishment for TJ Brody if it's sustainable, but I'm going to say it's not sustainable because he also had the highest even strength IPP and on ice shooting percentages of his career. So 36 even strength points is actually going to be a really tough act to follow for him. You combine that with a fairly stagnant power play minute situation for him and not really much opening either because there are two other guys. Even an injury might not help him get more power play time because Giordano and Hamilton are very capable 
of handling power play roles themselves. So I just don't see 50 points in the cards for him. I expect him to fall back down to earth, back to about a 40-point pace. Okay, and then let's talk about the other guy then, because I agree with you. I'm not going to be drafting Brody. I'll let someone else take him as like a 40 to 45, 50 point guy. I'd have to wait for him to drop to like the 40 point defenseman before I would be jumping for TJ Brody, because the guy I'm really excited about is Dougie Hamilton, someone who last year we were really excited about going into the year because he had come off a 42 points in 72 games season with Boston before he got signed by Calgary. And then at the start of last year, you know, it wasn't the hottest start. I remember he was really cold, but then just totally caught fire in the second half, ended the year with a similar points, 43, but in 82 games. So I guess not as good as previous year in Boston, but I just feel like he's the kind of guy that has so much upside and he's still pretty young. Like we're talking only 23 years old for Dougie Hamilton. He takes a lot of shots for a defenseman, which is nice. He had 190 last year. So I'm curious to know now, like I said, I saw projections as low as 38 and as high as 57 I have a feeling you're going to land somewhere in the middle. I definitely see him as closer to like a 50-point guy than a 40-point guy. Yeah, me too. And I've mentioned this so many times, but Dougie Hamilton, if you take out the first handful of games, I know that's not always completely fair, but I think it is here. Take out October and November, skip right through December. He played on a 54-point pace over 82 games. Of course, ran out of room to play 82 games, so he ended up with 43 on the season. But he was on pace to finish with 10 more so if the season started in December and a big part of that was TJ Brody coming in. Remember he missed the start of last season due to injury, by the way, making that even strength scoring total, even more impressive as an aside. But once Brody came back from injury, I feel like that helped stabilize Hamilton, or at least that's what the numbers show in terms of him being able to start producing. And the latter half of the season, the latter two thirds of the season were very strong. That was a 50 point season in there from him. He started shooting more. He looked more stable defensively as well for what that's worth any hockey pulleys. But I am a huge fan of Dougie Hamilton. He's also on the other end of the on-ice shooting percentage thing. I'd said that TJ Brody's was high at about 9.5%. Dougie Hamilton's was low at just about 6.5%. So you could probably count on his teammates having a little more success than they did last season while he's on the ice at putting the puck past the goalie. And that's only going to help assure that he hits that 50 point mark and hopefully a little bit more. Okay. Yeah, we'll see. It'll be a lot of fun following Dougie Hamilton's rise and also what's going to be happening on Calgary. We have a lot of storylines. I'm interested in Calgary because I also want to see what's going to happen with Brian Elliott, who we talked about last week, finally a hopefully capable goalie for the flames with hopefully a more capable defense. It'll be fun to see what happens with that team. Let's talk about Dougie Hamilton's former defensive partner in Zdeno Chara. He's a guy who last year we thought was like kind of over. <laughs> you know, we were saying this will be the first year that Chara isn't drafted high because the year before, in 2014-15, he had only 20 points in 63 games. Last year, bounce back season for Zdeno Chara, at least from the year before. He ended with 37 points in 80 games. And he's another guy who's being projected very wildly, I guess, like, He's as low as 25 and as high as 37. So 37 is exactly what he put up last year. So we had only one person, one of the three projectors was willing to say he would be the same as last year. Another one was 35, so very close. And then one person thought, okay, now it's time for him to finally fall off and go back to only 25 points. How do you project a guy like Zdeno Chera, who's 39 years old, somehow still being a productive defenseman in the NHL? I feel like his 37-point season last year was really like under the radar. Like No one was really talking about him. And you think of Tori Krug when you think of the defenseman to watch in Boston at this point. But, you know, he still put up 37 points. Do you think he could do it again? No, 
is my answer, but I also don't know that it's going to be as sharp a fall back down to his 2014-15 totals, which were, frankly, miserable. But what he's shown is that that was kind of a hiccup. He's not done. Everyone thought that, oh, he's a big guy. He's gotten old. He's staved up father time long enough, but the way he plays the game and the size of his body and whatever and the amount of hacking he takes is all reason to think that he was suddenly done. I'm so glad he's not. I'm a big Zdeno Chara fan. Always have been. Apparently, he's also a very nice guy in person, but that's not a category in your fantasy hockey league. <laughs> Just if it were. Why do I like him to still be okay, though? maybe just because I like the guy you know like I can't really give you a great reason I can tell you why last season went sideways for him like his shooting percentage went down his on ice shooting percentage went down his IPP was down at 23 percent which is you're talking about two seasons ago yes sorry from two seasons ago his IPP was way down to 23 percent compared to like a career average of 35 36 percent which is where it bounced back up to last year so I just feel like he can keep going. He can slowly ride off into the sunset as opposed to just falling off the horse. Okay, that's fair. And I guess power play is going to be the big thing. Like we, like, you know, we've said Tori Krug is probably the guy now. But, you know, last year, Chara still had 33% of the power play time. It would be nice if he could at least have that. Yeah, it would. Interestingly, last season, if you were to even try to name somebody who had more power play time on ice in Boston last year, who would you go with? Tori Krug, of course. Char was third, 13 power play minutes back of. I have actually a feeling I know who it is, because if someone who I was about to mention is someone I'm excited about on the Boston D. Is it Colin Miller by any chance? It's not. Oh. It's not. Colin Miller, maybe. He was sort of on pace to come close to Char's total. He was fourth on Boston. But that's who I would have guessed also if he had played a full season. But it was John Michael Lyles. seeing 13 more minutes of power play time and scoring eight fewer points with that power play time while Tori Krug was just miles ahead of both of them, like doubling both of their totals, essentially. So I don't know why Xenochar didn't get more power play time in Boston. Probably something I can look into and find an answer for. I expect him to hold steady. It's not like anybody is coming up really quickly in Boston. I mean, you do have Colin Miller who can eat into some of that, but at most he takes John Michael Lyles' ice time and Chara's still the third guy and still can pick up, you know, seven or eight power play points if he's lucky. Last year he managed 10 with limited ice time. Of course, I'm going to subtract one or two from that because of age, but I still think he can still get some of those power play points on the board and also pick up a few at even strength so that he doesn't fall back down to his 2014-15 levels just yet i actually i honestly hope he retires before he does fall back to those again uh, yeah i mean you always want someone to end gracefully uh comment in the chat room though daniel saying chara looks like a sludge at the world championship of hockey so if that's the case then we wouldn't expect him especially, to do that well especially when he's playing against team north america who are just playing a wide open speedy style he did look bad i think in one of the goals i can't remember if it was an exhibition game or an actual game he sort of just got walked around feel like World Cup hockey isn't his game. Hopefully he can be a little more strategically deployed over the season by Julian in Boston. Yeah, that's fair. By the way, the reason why I'm kind of excited about Colin Miller, last year, you know, not deployed very much. I guess it was his rookie season. Or was it? Yeah, it was. Even though he's 23 years old. So I guess an older rookie season. But even though he was only averaging around 15, 16 minutes a game, he ended up with 16 points in 42 games, which works out to like a 31-point pace, which is not bad. 
for a defenseman. And I would think as someone who gets deployed more, you'd expect him to be a little higher than that. So I think he's an under the radar guy. And you know how hard it is to find good defensemen that can put up points. Like once you go after like the top two in each team. And I think late in your draft, or maybe not in your draft, maybe more as like a guy to have at the top of your free agent list, just in case he gets more time. If Chara's time goes down and Colin Miller's goes up, I could see him being someone who could surprise us. I guess we're about done with the show. Now I want to just go to four guys, the hardest types of players to project. These guys, I'm not surprised that they had very different projections from our three projections because I'm talking about rookies, people who have no NHL experience, so hard to predict how they're going to do. And actually one of them is someone who had a little bit of NHL experience, but I'm curious to know how you'd like rank these guys or where you see them. So I'm going to tell you them all at once. I'm going to shoot it all out there and then you could say what you will about them because I know this isn't our strong suit. But we can start with Rantanen over in Colorado. I've been seeing, I guess not a projection, but I've been seeing word that like he might be ending up on the top line with like McKinnon and Gabriel Landeskog. Like he's a guy that people are expecting to step in right away and make an impact. Unfortunately, he apparently just had an injury and he's going to be out for one to two weeks. Hopefully that won't, you know, hurt his chances of making an impact in training camp and getting a good spot on the team. But I've seen one projection as low as 27 and then another one as high as 46. So completely different. Like one is a guy you draft. One is a guy you don't draft unless maybe you're in a keeper league. I'm curious to know about him. Actually, why don't we just do them one at a time? I should your mind. Okay. You caught me off guard there. Miko yeah. Rantanen. I was going to say that a change of line would be great for him, but then I looked up who he was with last year during his cup of coffee. He played nine games with the Avs last year, saw limited ice time, but he played pretty much exclusively with Jerome McGinley and Matt Duchesne, who are no slouches, but they just got crushed in terms of the shot attempts battle. And I imagine that did not help them get too many scoring chances. Rantanen, just going back a little bit, he was drafted 10th overall in 2015. And despite having a pretty poor showing in his NHL Cup of Coffee last year, he did have 60 points in 52 AHL games played. So the promise is there. He could be a rookie to me that can crack 40 points, especially if he is given a good situation on the depth chart. And if you look at Colorado and other players who might play right wing, you have Jerome Ginla, I guess is it. Joe Colborn's also there who had a pretty good season last year, but I'm not sure it was sustainable. Miko Rantanen could be the most talented or at least definitely the fastest right winger, although Joe Colborn is kind of speedy too. Anyway, Miko Rantanen is the best combination of skill and speed on the right side in Colorado per the depth chart today. Yeah, so that would be really cool for sure. And if he could either play on a line centered by Nathan McKinnon or Matt Duchesne, Either way, that would be a great situation for Miko Rantanen. So he's a guy who already has a good pedigree and looks like he can end up in a good spot. Another guy, obviously, with a good pedigree and could end up in a good spot is Jesse Puljujarvi, who I know for sure, this one I'll give away. Dauber loves Jesse Puljujarvi. I've seen him writing that he thinks he's going to be one of the top guys in the Oilers. He's going to surprise a lot of people. He hasn't projected really high, but there's other projections as low as like 31 points. I've seen it as high as 54. I'll give it away. Dauber likes Puljujarvi. He's the one who gave him the 54. And, you know, I guess you could see it, right? Like there's room for him, also a right winger. You know, aside from Jordan Everly, who else? I guess obviously Neil Yakupov is there, but I think 
uh, we're at the point now where we've kind of given up on Yakupov. He has to show us something. So you could pretty much see Puljo Jarvi ending up being centered by Ryan Nugent Hopkins or maybe Leon Dreisaitl if he ends up staying at center. On the left wing, though, you know, the thing with Edmonton is, you know, losing Taylor Hall really does kind of hurt how their top six looks. It looked so strong last year, but all of a sudden now, you know, you have your Connor McDavid, Eberle, and Lucic, which is the first line we expect. After that, on the left side, you know, Benoit Pouliot or Patrick Maroon, then like I said, Dreisaitl and Nugent Hopkins. Could be good, could be like not amazing, but just where, where do you see Puljo Jarvi landing? Closer to 50, closer to 30 or 40? Because I've seen all three. I think I'm going to go with fewer points than Miko Ranton. Ah, you know, saying it out loud just doesn't sound right. So I don't know if I can go with it. I think for me, I'm going to want to see him play with Nugent Hopkins as his center. Or of course, Connor McDavid would be lovely. I don't have faith that Leon Dreisaitl is good enough yet to be able to pull around a rookie. Not that Puljo Jarvi needs to be pulled around, but of course it would help. What Dreisaitl did last year was aided in large part by Taylor Hall. And so he'll be on his own now with Pouliot on his left side, perhaps, and Puljo Jarvi on his right. I'm just not sure which one of those three is going to be the one to drive offense. I don't know that Puljo Jarvi is ready for that role yet. I am cool to Puljo Jarvi, but if he does see ice time with Connor McDavid, or if the Oilers, you know, really want to entertain their fans and just unleash him and let him do whatever he wants. It could be a good season. I am definitely on the closer to 40 side, though, than 50, for sure. Maybe even, like, I would say I'm closer to 30 than I am to 50. Oh, wow. Okay. So you'd say you would take the 40 in the middle, but even lower than that if you had to pick one poll or the other. If I have to pick, I feel like it's always, again, prospects, you know, anything could happen in this guy's rookie season, depending on how he's deployed. It'd be really exciting to see him hit 45, but that's a tall order for a rookie, as we've talked about on previous episodes. Well, Brian, should we do something crazy right now and promote another podcast on our podcast? Do I have the gall to do it? But I, I guess I'll do it. Dauber Prospects actually just released the first episode of their new podcast. So you could check yes. that out. They'll talk about prospects and they'll probably know a lot more than us. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> but let's keep going with prospects anyways. How about Mitch Marner? I've seen projections as high as 61 points for him. And I've seen as low as not even listed. So <laughs> totally different polls there. What do you think, Mitch Marner on the Leafs? Obviously, you know, everyone's excited about Austin Matthews and William Nylander. I'm not sure where Marner would fit in, but there's definitely some spots on Toronto. Like, I guess if he's a center and you already have Kadri, Matthews, and Bozak, I wonder. But Marner's got to make the team, right? I hope so. I think if he shows he's ready, I think there's a spot ready for him to take. There's just a lot of, like, middling guys who could give the Leafs a reason to let Marner develop a little more before coming into the NHL. If you'll remember, he was picked fourth overall in the 2015 NHL entry draft, and he's had no even AHL experience to date. So there is a chance that he does start the season or continue the season or finish the season in the AHL this year. Just a little insight, though, into his scoring to date in the OHL. As a 17-year-old, he outscored... 19-year-old Max Domi on the same London Knights team in 2014-15, his draft year. And then last year, he was outscored by Christian Dvorak, but he did outscore another promising prospect in Matthew Kachuk. So take that all for what it's worth. He had huge seasons in the OHL. So a great scoring pedigree so far in Canadian junior hockey. I'm actually preferential for him over like Austin Matthews and William Nylander if he makes the team. I just feel like he's 
going to be available at a later round in your draft and provide similar value should he make the team. So if you have the benefit of knowing where he stands in the organization by the time your draft rolls around and you don't feel like reaching up for Matthews or even Nylander, I think Marner might be a guy who can fall later on and still, like I said, offer about as many points in his rookie season. Okay, well, that's very interesting. Yeah, I've seen some projections for Matthews up as high as 64 and as low as 50, but he's going to be a guy that people are really excited about. And in the Keeper League, by the way, all of our prospect talk kind of doesn't apply to Keeper League because we're just talking about what we think they're going to do next year. We haven't really been chiming in on how they think they'll do for their career. But yeah, I guess if you maybe you pass on Austin Matthews, who it's hard to know where he'll land and he's going to be valued really high in drafts. Maybe you want a more sure guy there. And then, yeah, like you say, get Mitch Marner with like your second last or last pick. Get a guy who could be close to as good and you paid a lot less for him. I want to end the show, Brian, with a guy. Maybe I'm like too excited about him. I want you to tell me if I am or am not. But I was very intrigued by Oliver Bjorkstrand last year when he had his cup of coffee with Columbus. I guess we've already talked about Columbus, by the way. So we can talk about where he fits into the depth chart. You said he's going to probably be in the top six. Last year, he played 12 games, had eight points which is a 55-point pace. And of course, you can't really do a point pace over a full season looking only at 12 games, but it was a very impressive start to his career. And in the short time he was there, he was playing on lines with guys like Boone Jenner and Brandon Sad. That was his most frequent line mates. And then second most frequent was like Brandon Sad and Alex Wenberg. So Bjorkson was being given the opportunity to play with good players. He's a guy who I don't think is on the radar for many people, especially not in the keeper league. I'm seeing one projection as high as 49 and then another one, once again, as low as not even listed. I'm curious to know. I kind of like the 49 projection. I kind of like seeing him as a potential 45 to 50 point guy if he has the right situation. And as someone that I'm pretty sure you're going to be able to get really late in your draft, he might be my sleeper. If someone asks me who's a really deep sleeper for this year, right now I'm leaning Oliver Bjorkstrand. Even though I know I've said like a whole bunch of other people. Damon Severson is another one I've thrown out there. We just did an AMA on Reddit, Brian. I know I'm going crazy off the rails right now, but in that AMA, we were asked that question a bunch of times, who are our sleepers? We threw out a bunch of names. You can check that out, by the way. I think it was Reddit slash r slash hockey search for our ama oliver bjorkstrand and the show wow you know i can't get that tweet out of my head that we received earlier this week that said we were sponsored by adderall or ritalin or some sort of something to calm us down because i i feel even more jittery this episode than i did in the past okay oliver bjorkstrand maybe i'll try and talk slowly but i'll probably lose it anyway so I don't he think was that picked... he was talking about you, Brian, as the fast talker. I don't think you have to worry about it. <laughs> I feel like it's contagious. I'm just so into your energy. It, it transfers. Okay, Oliver Bjorkstrand, picked in the third round, 89th overall, back in 2013. To give you a sense of what other players are in the NHL picked around that time, Anthony Duclair was picked about 10 spots ahead. And Andrew Kopp, who has played 78 games in Winnipeg, was picked 15 picks later so you know you're not in the greatest part of the draft but he was a good contributor in his brief time with Columbus this season he had eight points in 12 games and he played the entire time in the top six he either played with Jenner or Wenberg and always with Brandon Saad so if he can hold on to a top six spot in Columbus which it seems like he will by default they have to have something to hope for there then I believe that 49 points is not out of the question at all. Uh, And you look at his AHL production, wasn't stellar. He had 29 points in 51 games in his first professional season out of the WHL. But 
His performance in the playoffs was excellent. 10 goals and 6 assists for 16 points in 17 games played for the champion Lake Erie Monsters affiliate of the Columbus Blue Jackets. Wow. Wait. Yes, it's easier to remember whose affiliate they are when I'm talking about a Blue Jackets player who played for them. Right, but that was coached by Jared Bednar? Coached by Jared Bednar. New coach of the Colorado Avalanche, who now have Miko Rantanen. Oh my goodness. What a great, you you know, you've segued very smoothly through this whole episode. (laughs) All right. I think we should end the show here. (laughs) Maybe this is getting a little silly. Thank you, everyone, for listening. I'm so excited. I'm sorry to interrupt you, Elon, but this would have been my thing to say off the top. I'm just, I'm dying for games to be played, to see something happen. Like, World Cup is not doing the job of, like, satisfying my fantasy jonesing. I need training camp. I'll even settle for preseason. I need some games started so we can stop projecting and start figuring out why things are actually shaking out the way they are. So that's coming. Yeah, definitely, like, subscribe to the podcast if you're not subscribed. Our bread and butter is during the season. We're trying our best in the summer series to give you some insight into what happened. But I feel like my favorite thing to do is all throughout the week, be taking notes of guys who are doing well and guys who aren't doing well so that we could talk about them on the show, give you guys some hints of who you might want to pick up in your free agent list, who you might want to target in trades. We're going to get to that. It's going to be a lot of fun. I'm not even sure what we're going to do next week. We were actually planning on talking about advanced stats this week. Then we decided to bump it for this fun idea. So maybe we'll talk about advanced stats next week, or maybe we'll come up with something else. But yeah, stay tuned. Every week, 8 p.m., you could join us live at keepingcarlson.com slash live on Sundays. Again, I thank the patrons for supporting us. If you're interested in becoming a patron, check out keepingcarlson.com slash patron. Not too late to join the couple. We are drafting on October 2nd, which is two weeks from today. Can you believe it, Brian? It's finally coming. So you're jonesing for some hockey. How about jonesing for a hockey draft? You could join a hockey draft with some of the most competitive competitors you'll ever face. Brian, you're scoffing at me so much. So how about we cue the outro music? We also appreciate a five-star review on iTunes. And why don't you read us the credits? We really appreciate a five-star review on iTunes. There have not been a lot lately. So so get on there. Even if you maybe you forgot your old password and <laughs> you need to create a new iTunes account, go over and, uh, and, and help us out. Okay, this episode of the Keeping Carlson Fantasy Hockey Podcast was presented by Dauber Hockey and supported by our patrons. It was researched with help from Dauber Hockey, Frozen Pool, Corsica.Hockey, Hockey Analysis, Hockey Reference, Hockey Database, Elite Prospects, Fan Tracks, and Roto World. And Brian, you know it's a good podcast because we have all these cool references. <laughs> Thanks everyone for listening. Good job, Brian. We'll catch you all in a week. Until then, keep on keeping Carl's sign in perpetuity. <laughs>